welcome to Work Interrupted, a podcast looking at work life after COVID and asking what next. I'm Christina Patterson and I'm talking to people from a wide range of working backgrounds to find out how their own work is changing in the light of current challenges, what they think will happen to the work landscape and how we can make work work better for each other and for us. Today I'm delighted to welcome Nikki Kanani, a GP in South East London and also Medical Director for Primary Care for NHS England. Nikki was selected by Pulse magazine as top up-and-coming GP in 2012 and 2013. In 2017, she was awarded an MBE, and then in 2018, she was the first woman to be appointed Director of Primary Care in the NHS. And she's not yet 40. She talked to me about Zoom consultations for patients, what she has learned as a daughter of immigrants, and how her community pharmacist parents were keen for her to be an actor and for her sister to be an astronaut. Oh, and what it was like to take part in those Downing Street briefings. I'm afraid the sound quality on this recording is uneven at times, but please bear with us because Nikki's great. Well, I'm absolutely thrilled to have you on my podcast, Nikki. I've never met you, but I sort of feel like I do have, even <laughs> though I, I don't know why I do, but I do. Um, actually, probably not least from watching you on telly, but anyway, we won't go there. Um, I don't imagine you've had time to bake much banana cake over the past few months. Is this the hardest you've ever worked in your professional career? I think so, Christina, and thank you for having me. It's lovely to join you. I, I feel the same, actually, from just, well, obviously reading your book and following you on Twitter, which is when I uh, sort of first got in touch with you because what you wrote uh, resonated so much with me, uh, even then, and uh, I think particularly more so now, as you can imagine. Um, yes, it is, um, but in a really um, strange way, I think, you know, we've got the whole um, the whole profession, the whole of kind of, the NHS geared up and um, and and has actually been geared up for months now, working at an incredible pace. Not just in terms of delivering really great uh, care in a really difficult um, time, but also adapting to changes. and And I know that most in my own profession, general practice, in primary care. But actually, um, although it has been a, definitely a difficult difficult few months, very complex few months, um, I recognise that those who are kind of working full-time in clinical practice or behind the scenes supporting clinical practice are equally having a, a, a challenging time, which, as I said, will, will go on for some time to come. Mm. I mean, it's, it's funny because for the past few months, a big chunk of the population including me, has basically been in a kind of weird suspended animation, trying to work and run their lives from home, initially not allowed to leave the house and now sort of terrified of leaving the house. While others like you have been living a version of the old life, but much, much more intense. How has that felt for you? I felt quite disconnected, actually, Christina, in the sense that, um, so I'm, I'm still a GP. And when I go into general practice, um, you know, our whole team is there, people are still there. And it really, it's quite upsetting sometimes to hear the the stories of uh, sort of general practice not being open. And I, I know from my own experience, mm. and from colleagues around the country, you know, general practice has been so um, in one sense, I go in and I, I see my colleagues, and I'm still caring for patients and still bringing them in when, when they need to need to be brought in uh, to be to be seen face to face and that feels in one sense uh, quite normal although we do a lot of um, a lot of our work remotely now um, and we can we can talk about that um, and then yeah. on the other hand obviously I'm talking with uh, colleagues uh, nationally uh, across kind of uh, 
government and stakeholders and others and you're sort of discussing very very impactful things um and then obviously the translation only really comes you only really feel that huge gap and divide when you're then uh, trying to zoom your family later on because you actually haven't seen them and mm -hmm. and um it's it's been very strange it's been a real kind of a disconnect i think and um you know sometimes you'll say oh i can actually go and do that now and i've been sort of equally reluctant for different reasons um so we've kept life quite 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 quiet you know despite sort of work being busy um uh, I've got two children and we've sort of stayed at home a lot and in the back garden a lot mm. or rather they've been in the back garden and I've been sort of at the dining table working which has worked <laughs> yeah, just about I occasionally have uh, children running behind my screen in a meeting um but uh, people have become very tolerant of that now I see I was in a board meeting yesterday and uh and at the end of it uh, we were asked if anyone uh, felt anything could have been better and I said yes we didn't have any toddlers running in and that kind of it was very boring and we got kittens yeah. so now we have you know kittens or children or children chasing kittens it's 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 quite um always quite high energy <laughs> and are your, your are your children preschool age um no there are eight and twelve so actually they are um now, uh, I don't I don't suppose any age group is easy, but they have been incredibly brilliant. And my daughter, my son never went back to school. My daughter only went back in the last couple of weeks of summer term. Um, so uh, my, my son's a 12 year old. So he's sort of been upstairs doing his online learning been a real self-starter which has been I'm very wow. grateful for um my daughter um you know that eight-year-old age is a little bit different needs a bit more support so she'd be doing topics at school and sort of looking at a presentation and saying oh well, mummy the teacher would would present this and they would tell me about this are you going to do that and then I'll do a worksheet and I was like no no <laughs> yeah, sorry, you need to you need to um read the presentation and then do the worksheet and I'm I'm really sorry for that but that's uh that's where we are and that's a juggle that everyone sort of sort of has hasn't it yeah, we had uh, we had dinner with friends last night in their well, in, initially in the garden and then in their house, which felt yeah. like the naughtiest thing in the history yeah. of mankind, yeah. even though it's legit now. Um, and their ten-year-old was uh, showed she'd done fantastic art display. She'd just done so much art, and she was giving uh, such incredible lectures about the art she'd done. I said she should do her own YouTube channel on it. It was really yeah. phenomenal. Yeah. I, I do think children have been incredibly creative and during a very tough time obviously some of them have had minimal stimulus and help for all kinds of reasons yeah. but um my god some of them are extraordinary and and kind of teach us really don't they the way they get they on do. with things they do they do and just reminds me more and more how important it is for them to you know now start to you know circumstances being as they are you know getting back to school uh in 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 the next time getting back to being with friends you know sort of learning again how to socialize not you know not just with their adults and, and it's certainly my my 12 year old is very bored of us now and would much mm. rather which I can understand mm. now you talked about you've always been a champion of technology and you've been very hot on social media you joined um twitter I think a good two years several years before I did and I joined very reluctantly actually and then became yeah. a total addict obviously yeah. <laughs> um but um and people, I, I've been to endless things over the years about how the NHS needs to get with the programme digitally and it sort of never does. And then overnight it did. Yeah. Were, were you surprised by how quickly GP practices managed to, to use the jargon, roll out um, <laughs> virtual consultation? Um, 
I'm I'm sort of um, in two minds about this. In one sense, no, I'm not, because um, general practice and primary care more broadly, you know, really does try to be innovative in the kind of system and environment it finds itself in. And and, and often it's it's really tricky because, you know, we look after 80, 82% of all contacts that happen in the NHS. It's a huge amount of activity that happens. Mm -hmm. So that headspace for change can be quite limited. But at the same time, I spend a lot of my time uh, pre-COVID going around the country, visiting different uh, practices, networks, parts of primary care. And, you know, you really see how innovative and creative primary care is. So in one sense, I'm not. Having said that, I mean, if we look back and we think, you know, really over the first four weeks, even five weeks of the pandemic and of lockdown, the changes that we've delivered on, that our, you know, the profession has delivered on, are incredible. I mean, these are things, um, Christina, that we'd really planned to roll out and kind of really embed over probably another couple of years, if I'm being realistic mm. about it, mm. because um, there were so many different levels of, 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 of ambition within sort of the next few years plan for primary care. Um, and, and that was things like, you know, getting getting websites uh, useful and usable, getting um, apps useful and usable so that you can access your own um, records and appointments. You know, uh, I mean, the really fundamental change, the ability to do the remote triage, which is where um, either you know, you you might you might um, as a member of uh, the public uh, seeking care, you might fill out a form or have a telephone conversation before your actual actual consultation, so that you are seen or you speak to exactly the right person. Because actually, sometimes it's not the GP that's the right person to to look after you or to give you your care. It might be the pharmacist or the physiotherapist or or the social prescriber. So there's lots of different ways in which um, the technology being embedded is really going to help general practice and primary care. Um, and I mean, you know, I'm I'm really lucky. I, I work in a, a wonderful practice that has been um, in the local community for decades. And my senior partner, um, you know, will will happily sort of say, you know, he wasn't really a fan of um, tech before uh, COVID. And then we had to really rapidly move from being a very face to face practice. You know, people would walk in and wait, and they chat in the waiting room, and, and we'd see a huge amount of people just in the morning alone. Um, and we've had to switch wholesale onto a, a remote sort of platform. Um, and you know what? The whole team have embraced it, and 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 most mm. importantly, patients have as well. And and I know it feels difficult sometimes because it's, you know, you just want to, in some senses, get back to normal, you know, just book my appointment. I just want to see my GP. Um, but actually, this is this is phenomenal because what this means is not just do we make sure the patients get the right care, as I described, but we'll use our really valuable um, assets, our staff, in a much better way. So rather than GPs sort of doing everything and feeling really quite exhausted, particularly mm. uh, pre-COVID and and obviously through COVID as well, but pre-COVID, feeling like they're working well beyond their energy and um and 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 resilience, actually what we do is start to spread that workload. So it's a better offer for patients, but but a, a better environment for staff to work in as well, which which is really, really important to me. I want people to work in general practice and in primary care because they love it and they enjoy it and they want to go there every day. But if the pressure is so enormous that they're feeling fed up and they're not seeing their families and they can't quite get on top of their work, then actually we've got a system that isn't sustainable and we really need primary mm. care to sustain because it is the bit of the, the our healthcare system that, that keeps our healthcare system um, as, as, as um, reactive and supportive and, and responsive as, as it is.
Absolutely. And, and, and do you think, I mean, you get, I think, is it nine minutes generally patients are allotted? Do you think on in virtual, it, with a more virtual, a hybrid model in which there are more of the consultations are virtual, that patients could get a little bit more time? Yes, I do. And I think this is going to be the really neat bit. Um, during COVID and as we get through winter, we probably won't see this benefit. But as we kind of roll into, into a new year and we, and we bed in the changes, what I'd really like to be able to do is, as you describe, use the technology that we have available to us, use the range of staff that we have working in and starting to work more in primary care so that um, actually then when you need that longer consultation with your GP or indeed a longer amount of time with your pharmacist because you need to go through your medications, et cetera, actually you can have it. So um, if we get this right and if we really use everything that we've learned, all the beneficial parts of COVID, and there are some, although it doesn't always feel it, there are some, if we really use those well and embed them well, then actually if you need to sit with your GP for longer than your nine, 10 minutes, you can do. And that could also work from a telephone call point of view as well. And it can work with other staff members. So um, I really do think that that is our opportunity. It has been interesting, though. I'm finding, I mean, face-to-face um, -face consultations have gone from sort of 70, 75% down to 20, 25% around the country. So it's a massive yeah. drop. But that's been replaced by mainly telephone consultations. And what I've found is actually telephone consultations, people... Um, we're thinking that they might, they might be quicker. You just phone and you know do whatever you need to, and you're done. Actually, they're taking longer than your nine ten minutes. Um, so at the mm. moment, it's a little bit trickier because. Uh, you know, if you're seeing someone face to face, you build rapport and you understand what's going on clinically much quicker because you take all the non non-verbal cues, you know, or they're, they're holding their yeah. their leg in an interesting way or they keep going to that particular point on their tummy or or, or actually there's something else going on and they're not telling me. Um, and on the telephone, that takes much longer to get to. So, um, you know, I, I think, you know, we're learning all the time. And and in terms of um, is there anything I mean, is there anything you can get out of a Zoom um, consultation that you couldn't get out of a face-to-face -face one? Well, it's really interesting. So we um, generally, video consultations weren't very well taken up before COVID for two reasons. One, general practice didn't really have the tech sort of comfortably um, in place uh, to, to be able to to, to be able to even do any sort of video consultation, uh, let alone have the the, the supplier kind of uh, platforms in place. Um, and secondly, what we found, and we did a lot of work with sort of patient groups to understand why, but patients weren't massive fans of video consultations. And what, what the majority, and this isn't obviously everyone, and there's different versions of kind of what good looks like for different people, but in the majority, people were saying, actually, I don't want my GP to see my house or to see my surroundings, mm -hmm. and, and, or I don't want them to see me at work. So I think some of that will change because we've all become much more comfortable with video consultations or mm. with video generally. So, for example, where we've um, obviously all been having versions of Zoom quizzes and family catch ups, we might become more comfortable with, um, you know, with Zoom and other video kind of uh, consultation software. Having said that, um, I think, you know, the, what the video consultation gives us, it gives us the ability to look after patients um, in, you know, sort of on their own terms. Actually, if they've got a lump or bump or a rash that they need looking at, being able to see that is great. 
Um, I don't use video consultation a lot, Christina. What I've found is mm. I will do a surgery and, you know, I will telephone 18 to 24 triaged patients. Then I will usually bring in three or four of those patients for a face-to-face. -face. What right. I found is, what I'll do is if I speak to them and I think I need to see them, I, what you know, early days of the pandemic, I would then do a video consultation and then still need to bring them in anyway. So mm. I think what, what the real value um, that we've got in general practice is the kind of the better use of a telephone, which seems daft, but actually it's given us the time to, to, to really get used to using it. Um, Having said that, you know, I'm, I'm really, I'm really grateful. Our, our, you know, various of our um, IT and, and system suppliers have have been very creative and created tech that really supports general practice to video or um, telephone call um, and get the get the information embedded into the notes well. So, so I think you know these are changes that are here to stay. Um, but we've got to be particularly cautious. Um, I was at the launch of a, of a report last week um, from National Voices, who represent a range of charity stakeholders, and they'd done some work with patient groups about their experiences of uh, telephone and video, generally remote consultations. And patients broadly were sort of saying, you know, yes, it's yes, it's useful, yes, it's important, but actually there are a as a cohort, um, and we think at least 1.2 million, if not more, uh, people who will really struggle with digital technology. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, digital inclusion is something that really, really does worry me, um, alongside yeah. sort of health inequalities, um, people who don't speak English as a first language, migrant populations, people who can't embrace tech for lots of reasons. So, you know, we've got to do a lot more work, and it's definitely something that we're committed to doing on digital inclusion, working with communities, and, and making sure digital there for people who want it but people who don't want it or who can't use it need to be able to get the care that they uh, that they deserve and um, because that's our offer to society so that's kind of the next thing that we need to do is kind of not just embed the changes on the on the staff side but actually make sure that we're not losing the ability to care for the most vulnerable in society who won't have had necessarily the opportunity to rapidly get excited about the offers that we've started to sort of roll out now. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. In fact, I wanted to ask you more about health inequalities later. But one thing I, I do want to say in response to that is I, I think it's partly also about um, a kind of more respect for everybody's time. Uh, years ago, I remember writing a, a guest blog for the King's Fund about kind of imagining what a future um, GP and, and patient relationship might look like and thinking I mean, things have have actually improved a lot since then. My own GP practice is very good, but mm. certainly there used to be the kind of waiting around for hours, and you know, the doctor will see you now, and it's all kind <laughs> of you know, doff your hat to the master, and yeah. and deferential, and um, whereas now, obviously, you know, people come along with their instructions from Google, and the <laughs> doctor takes them or doesn't, as the case may be. But uh, a, a few months ago, before this whole nightmare hit, um, I managed to swallow a fishbone in the night, and um, and then yeah. get up worried about it I managed to bash my eye on the back of a chair oh, and, uh, so I went to, so I went to local A&E with uh, the the, squid, the fish bone by then seemed secondary to my blindness oh, and yeah. um and I, I waited there uh, for quite a while at A&E and was then sent to another hospital where I was told I would see yeah. um an eye specialist whatever that's called waited another three yeah. hours and um and then was told to come back in the morning so the whole thing took I think about nine hours um in order for basically <laughs> someone to look at my eye yeah. <laughs> and, 
And of course, now, you know, COVID has very effectively scared people away from A&E, uh, possibly, uh, or, you know, quite like, probably unhelpfully in many cases. But yeah. um, it seems to me that GP surgeries have got better at respecting people's times, but other parts of the healthcare system don't. And that, um, or has, haven't got better at it. And if we really want a kind of collaborative relationship where it feels like a proper partnership, where we're all working together to build health rather than just combat disease, then yeah. that has to be part of it, doesn't it? Yeah, oh, absolutely. And, you know, just going back to your, uh, you know, the, your description of um, somebody will Google something first. I, I'm going to be honest here, I love it when somebody does that. And actually... <laughs> I particularly enjoy it. And I have to say, particularly in face-to-face consultations, because someone will come in and they'll kind of go, I've looked at this and and, and I'm really sorry. And I'm like, no, 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 that's great. Because actually what that is, is, you know, you, I, we, looking after our own health and trying to navigate the health landscape to sort of go, actually, can I work this out? Where do I actually need to take this? You know, who is the right person to give me support for this particular care need? So so I love it. Um and I think it's a really good opportunity to kind of go, well, that that was great. But what you could have done is also look here or, you know, actually, this is a more trusted site. And that, you know, then you build that health kind of literacy, which is which is really important. Um, but, mm. but your point, your, your, your core point there that, you know, the, the ability of us to, you know, build mutual respect for time is is so important, isn't it? And we don't. We don't do enough of that. We absolutely must do. Um, I think, I, I do think, you know, uh, again, one of the un, unforeseen benefits of COVID is, you know, we will start to think much more carefully. Um, and we, we have done, you know, I haven't had, um, for all the remote kind of uh, triage and consultations and everything that I've done, and, and colleagues say this as well, I haven't had some of the lower level illness that we normally would have. Now, some of that mm. is useful because it hides something else and someone wants to talk about something else. But actually, a lot of the very basic stuff, you know, uh, the Verrucas and all of that, you know, people are people are looking after their self more. And I really mm. I really hope that that continues, because actually, if we do that, that's that's better for an individual. But it also means we can use our resources better as well mm. um, and, um, and and build that. Oh, gosh, you know, you described it so well, that that respect for for, for that mutual respect for time into the way that we into the way that we work so um I, I i really hope to see more of that i know that um you know hospitals have a longer journey to go on in terms of being um building more tech in but i know that a lot of certainly my chief exec colleagues are sort of um already thinking about it or starting to think about how um outpatients and follow-up care follow-on care is delivered differently so that people aren't spending either hours waiting in a place to be seen at the convenience of of someone else or, or schlepping around you know part of a town or city in order to get that care so um, you know, that's that's absolutely part of the kind of the next phase of uh, the work that, you know, we're doing nationally to say, right, what are the things that look good? What are, we've described it as, a, you know, what are the best beneficial changes and how do we really um, embed those um, in a way that we would not have had the opportunity to do um, uh, pre-COVID? Mm. And we, we all know about the challenges with PPE and testing and care homes, and they've been widely discussed, and we won't go into all that again. But were there any challenges that took you by surprise during this time? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think I think what's been really hard is to... I, th- I think I'll say this for the profession as well as for myself, is just, is just the pace. And I know in a sense that that sounds a little bit 
daft because of course we've just all had to keep working but I don't think at the beginning of this and certainly sort of mid-February when, when when things were really starting to kick in and we were starting to think about what this means for particularly for primary care in my instance I don't think we had any sense of how sustained um you know how how much of a high level of kind of uh, focus energy um and um uh, 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 an input we'd have to put into this and i think that's at all levels of the system and and i remember having discussions with our teams saying right let's let's reorganize let's create a covid you know we, we have what's called a kind of a covid cell and you know a few people can be in there and then we'll have other people doing all the other things that are happening you know all the other we had lots of big plans for this year um uh, nationally in terms of things that we were going to deliver and enable and and put in place um and we thought well you know we'll take a few people we'll take a you know a little bit of time and my gosh it it has consumed everyone i know for so long um and i think you know one of the things that i say most often now in in all sort of the meetings that i have and host is this is a long haul we're, we're heading into kind of planning for winter now and we've got staff who are already tired um already fed up already exhausted they haven't had a bank holiday with their their family they haven't got away they ha you know it has been fairly relentless so i think our ability right now uh, nationally we're not, but, but also um through our stakeholders and partners and the different organizations we work with our, our, our ability now to be compassionate is 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 more important than it ever has been i remember the conversations and we will have all have had it in our families you know particularly when i had quite a few uh, family members shielding and particularly in those early days um sort of scientifically knowing that it could be 12 weeks but as a human thinking oh yeah no i'll, I'll see my dad soon it's fine you know um i think all of us have probably been quite blown away at the 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 the, the length of time rightly that this has been going on for now mm, mm. I mean this is where it helps to be a pessimist I mean I'm not sure I'm exactly a pessimist but when <laughs> this whole thing when this thing hit I remember um probably early March walking mm -hmm. around and looking at people and thinking don't you realize what's about to happen and and had such a terrible sense of kind of doom and foreboding that um that in a way I mean I, I it is a tragedy and um unfortunately it, it's only at the beginning of unfolding in so many ways the kind of multiple layers of this tragedy but um i i assumed that life would i mean rightly or wrongly and let's hope i'm wrong from the beginning i was thinking okay well let's let's write off the next 18 months and then think again after that so yeah, um i hope i hope i'm wrong i you know i think in one sense you're right and the way we plan is certainly you know we're thinking at the moment in detail up to April of next year, April 2021, um, but it will continue to have effect. And it, it is, it's that strange thing, you know, you can see the, you can see the data, you can see the pattern emerging. And um, uh, I guess in one half of my head, didn't really want to believe it. Uh, mm. <laughs> and, you know, you mm. just think about all that, you know, um, but, but it has, in, in one sense, it is, as you said, it has been on, um, uh, you know sort of a painfully 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 tragic um but you know i am a big believer and we have to you know we have to take what we can and learn what we can and um, both in healthcare but also sort of as 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 families and um 
and groups and um, friends and you know uh, I was you know uh, the kids and I were talking about this last night you know where it it does feel very much that lots of people are are back to normal and I was sort of trying to remind them about the great things we'd got about all being at home albeit they didn't see much of me but you know no weekends going off seeing other people you know just being very much in our own bubble and in our own space and what bits of that do we want to try and retain going forward um so it was incredibly exciting to see you on telly on the Downing Street press briefing. Um, I am sure you are not in a position to comment on any of the politics of this whole situation, but what was it like to be in that room with all those flags behind you and that wood panelling <laughs> and so on? Yeah, I mean, it was very, it was very surreal, um, partly because, of course, uh, particularly at the beginning, uh, or sort of my my first time, um, you know, you We'd been, we'd been very careful about when we were going out of the house, let alone anything else. So, um, you know, coming coming into, I mean, I, I live in South London, so it's not too, too bad at all, but coming into London and seeing how, how different it was. Um, and, and it was really, sorry, so what was really important to me, the bit that I will I will, I will talk about is um, the, the ability to represent um, was very important to me, and I mean that not just because I was able to talk a little bit about the role that primary care was playing, but also to you know to be female and to be a woman of colour on the stage was was very important to me. Um, uh, because you know um, there's my family and relations and there's communities out there that, that that need to be able to see that there is a diverse group of people supporting, leading, thinking about the impact of changes on their. Uh, on their spaces and on their lives so um yes you know very strange experience um but uh, uh you know um it was uh, definitely uh, one for the one for the memory book <laughs> oh, amazing amazing now in 2012 and 2013 you were selected by pulse magazine as top up-and-coming gp um, you've been named by the Health Service Journal as a rising star. In 2017, you were awarded an MBE. And then in 2018, you were the first woman to be appointed Director of Primary Care in the NHS. And you're not yet 40, is that right? <laughs> not yet. Amazing. Not yet. Amazing. Um, not too far. <laughs> so I... And clearly, and you have a sister, Sheila, is it pronounced Sheila or yeah, Sheila? Sheila? Yeah, no, Sheila, Sheila. that's right, you got it. Who's, who's an astronomer, teacher, comedian and co-founder with you of STEM Sisters, a, a social <laughs> enterprise supporting young people to study science, technology and technology, engineering, maths and medicine. So where did these Dynamo sisters come from? Tell me a bit about your family and background. Oh, well, look, I'm going to very happily blame my parents. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we, um, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you wrote to my sister. She's, she is my best friend. You know, every time we could snatch a bit of time, I've been... Um, now, I, I haven't used house party very much, but I have used it with my four-year-old nephew so that we can draw pictures for each other. Um, <laughs> so that's been a real, a real highlight of, of, of lockdown. But so, so my my dad came here in '72. He was a um, a refugee, um, had come here because of um, Idi Amin, and he was in a refugee camp in Kent for six months um, over over a winter. Um, 
It was, uh, you know, a very strange experience for him. He was um, in his late teens, uh, 18, um, and they'd come over as a, you know, they're a big family, but come over with nothing. They were not allowed to come with anything and come over slightly in dribs and drabs as they were allowed to get across. And so um, he's had an, you know, incredible life. He met mum at uh, Sunderland Polytechnic, um, where they were both studying pharmacy. And I still, I still to this day don't, I don't understand how you come here with nothing um, and then you, you you turn things around in a, in what can be such a difficult environment. And I'm obviously proud of him. I'm, I'm so incredibly in awe of all the people who've had to do that and still have to do that. Um, and mum came here as an economic migrant. The family came um, uh, from Kenya. Um, so she'd, she'd come here um, uh, uh, younger, uh, at, a, at a slightly younger age than my dad. And um, they are, I mean, of, co you know, of course, I'm going to say this, they're incredible. They've, they've been community pharmacists for over 40 years um, in the same area um, for all that time. So we grew up very much, um, I mean, quite literally living in the community pharmacy. So I was in the, um, you know, the wire baskets that you get for shopping. Um, they used to have me in one of those by the till. Um, so <laughs> I, I still, and I kid you not, even now, so we still uh, we still have to go back on Christmas Eve. I'll still come back on Christmas Eve and spend time in the pharmacy. And, and I, and genuinely, 40 years later, people will still say every year, oh, you, you were the one in the basket, weren't you? <laughs> you're, you know, you're Mr. Clowney's baby. <laughs> but I think, I think genuinely growing up in that sort of world where, you know, you're, you're in the community every day, you know, certainly preschool. And I still have vivid memories of being around the till and toddling around and being near people um, in the pharmacy, um, in the front of the pharmacy. You know, you 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 realise what's important and those community relationships um, and those um, those connections, those are the, you know, those are the ties that bind. And I think something that Shills and I very much experienced was, was that, but also the relationship my parents had with their, and they still call them their patients, you know, with their patients and the kindness and the consideration. So, so I think we were both going to end up building on things that were important to us through our relationship with our parents. Um, Interestingly, I've been quite interested in kind of um, acting and dancing and, 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 and my parents had sort of gone, oh, how do we support you to do that? And when I then changed my mind and said I wanted to do medicine, they were worried about me doing medicine. So they were very atypical for an, for an Indian family. <laughs> Exactly. It's a bizarre, bizarre situation. <laughs> um, and my sister was as sort of almost similar, you know, and wanted to be an astronaut. So they were like, Yes, that's a great idea. Um, <laughs> so what she hasn't you know, she hasn't quite done that, although she's been to lots of kind of space centers and stuff. Um, the work that she does is very much again, although it's about space, it's very much about how you support the community. So it's outreach, it's um, supporting mm. areas that wouldn't normally get, for example, she set up sort of astronomy GCSEs. I mean, normally these are communities that would never have had that. And now she she's still doing it through COVID. And um, uh, so, so yeah, I think <laughs> I think if anything, I'll blame them. Um, but actually, I'm obviously very, very, very grateful to them. Um, and we, we come from a big family, so we're, we're very lucky that although, you know, growing up, you know, we didn't have lots of holidays and stuff. Dad, you know, was working every hour um, possible. Um, 
but we had a big family my you know certainly particularly on my mum's side you know they'd come across with all their cousins and everything and all their cousins are still you know very very close both geographically and emotionally and I mentioned family Zooms and we got everyone on Zoom over lockdown, which was great. And at times, you know, Zoom has a maximum number of screens. We'd have two pages of screens and sort of 30, 40 families joining. Because, you know, that's, you know that is how we do things. Um, so we are going to struggle with the 30 people rule for a very long time because, you know, we can't, we've never, we've never done it just as, and I remember at school in French lessons um, in, in my middle school, um sort of been asked how many grandparents I had and I said eight because obviously I was counting my grandparents brothers and sisters and we'd never really had that sort of divide and the French teacher was like no you can't have eight I was like yes but I do you know um and, <laughs> and um anyway so so I think you know having that strong sense of family and community has just meant that we've been I think we've been quite um, lucky to have that sort of support and that, um, mm. that 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 sense of a cheerleader behind us, whether it's mum or the wider wider family, um, and we've had the opportunity to try stuff out. And we've both we both definitely say and we say this to sort of our mentees and stuff. We've definitely failed and done things wrong along the way, but being able to very much support each other to do the next thing and just go for it <laughs> it's funny because um matthew matthew side i interviewed matthew side for my podcast the other day and yeah. he was saying um, about how uh his father who came over from pakistan had, his parents had this incredible attitude about you know if he if he messed up in a school play it's like you know there, there will be other opportunities go for it and a friend, a friend of mine texted me yesterday a, a white middle class uh friend said god I wish I'd had Matthew Side's dad she said my dad used to say oh Rosie I wouldn't do that if I were you <laughs> so, but it is interesting how um I think I think well the immigrant experience is you know very often one of um obviously the you know the stereotypical thing of working very hard but also taking new opportunities all the things that you you know if you're part of the um a sort of host population you're less likely to do because you haven't got that hunger you haven't got the hunger and drive that drove you to a new place in the first place yes yes and I think I think that's absolutely right about the opportunities I mean there was certainly never a sense of well everything will end if you don't get this thing right I mean it just wasn't there and certainly over lockdown mum and dad have been great albeit remotely great you know um mm. and I will you know occasionally and I have done and you know very happy to admit you know 10 11 12 o'clock at night often mainly my mum uh calling her fairly broken or rather my dad will often answer and go here you go speak to your mum and mum's like it's fine you know and she'll be very much you know it's okay you know we'll work through her we'll you know won't necessarily know mm. the politics or the detail but kind of be able to say right you know not in a cheesy way towards another day but now okay reset what are what are the things that are painful here it's it's usually you know if your values or integrity are being squashed okay how are you going to reflect those the next day and then you start again um and and i think that sort of that implicit a, a kind of permission to fail is is really important um mm. because because we all need that don't we? we all need that space to kind of go oh, i'm just going to try this and Oh, no, that didn't. Okay, that's fine. I can try something else. And 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 I speak to sort of particularly um, trainee GPs quite a lot, and they sort of say, oh, "What do I need to do next?" And I sort of uh, I, will, I will always say, 
you know, say yes, try stuff out. It is so important to try and then learn and then try again than to just feel that you have to sort of commit to one thing or plan things out for the next five or 10 years, which I've, which I've never done. And I get a lot of questions about sort of career planning. And for me, it's been very much, you know, I, I certainly didn't expect to do this even five years ago, even a couple of years ago. I mean, I, I came in as the deputy, so I, I'd, I'd sort of thought I'd come and learn how the NHS works nationally. I never really, um, and very honestly, never thought that I would then do it in a full-time, substantive uh, national director capacity, you know. Um, but it came, the opportunity came, and that was the right thing to do. And um, I think that's kind of the beauty of it, isn't it? If you can... Um, take chances when they're offered and and people can't always and I recognize that but when you can to absolutely do that because um you know you never know what's around the corner well as your twitter banner says what if I fail over <laughs> my darling what if you fly it's, exactly. um, it's exactly. wonderful it's really wonderful and and what would you do you think are the key qualities beyond your background and your parents and the support of your family that have enabled you to achieve the things you've achieved I think um, something that's really important to me, which won't quite be described as a quality, but I'll I'll try and turn it into one, um, are, are sort of my and my team's relationships. So whether that is um, our relationships with our partners and stakeholders, our relationship with the profession, um, my, my networks, um, building, growing uh communities who are interested in the same thing um who can help to navigate either your personal journey or, or or the journey your policy is going on is really important and that's probably one of the key things that I sort of say to people who are thinking about their career and the things that are important to them you know you can't this sort of stuff particularly this type of role you cannot do alone and you need to both understand um where other people are coming from, but also how what you're doing is landing, uh, particularly at the moment, you know, and um, particularly where people are feeling very different um, experiences um, through COVID and through some of the things we have and haven't done nationally. Um, so, so cultivating, supporting, nurturing relationships and networks is key. Um, mm. I think one of the other things that is really important to me personally is sort of is sort of really understanding my value set. And, and what crossing a line means to me um mm. and I suppose in a sense that sounds slightly loaded it's not meant to be but I'm 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 very gut-led um and don't worry I have very good head-led people in my team but I'm very <laughs> gut-led <laughs> um and I need to be and so if things don't feel comfortable I can feel it fairly quickly mm. and I can't always solve it all but I can certainly get things to a better place and and I and I think that that is a really important um, skill to have. And I certainly think where we're trying to move to a space where leadership is and should be more compassionate and more person-centered and more thoughtful and much flatter in hierarchy, then a, mm. a key part of that is to be able to understand your values and to understand, you know, your values in relation to someone else's in, in, in order to kind of build that type of leadership, which I think we all we all need and we all need to, you know, we all respond to really well. Um, it just often feels very, you know, very difficult to get there. So, you know, very much understanding your gut, working with other people, 
And I think, and I hope I do this, uh, I try to be really clear about this. If I, if I don't know or if I can't solve something, being honest about it. Um, and, and, and historically, I don't think we've done that well enough. Um, but I'm really happy to kind of say, um, I, I'm sorry. Um, and often there's things without our, outside of our gift. But, you know, I'm, you know, I'm sorry for the way that this has impacted a group of people. Um, how can we do it better? Help me get it better. And I think, I hope that that is an important part of certainly this role, but also um, others, I see people sort of coming through the system, sort of, you know, being able to do the same thing, recognising that people are in very different circumstances, but trying to sort of um, bring people with you and, 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 and where you're struggling and where you haven't quite got it right. Being honest about that, um, so I, th I think they're the key things for me. Mm. Well, um, for example, if we look at the women leaders during this pandemic, Jacinda Ardern, uh, Angela Merkel, a number of the Scandinavian Scandinavian leaders, um, the uh, I can't remember the name of the uh, woman who runs Kerala. Um, those are very much the qualities they've brought to their leadership. Um, unlike certain other leaders we won't discuss at the moment, some of whom may or may not be running our country. But um, um, yes, I, I, I agree. And I do think that, um, I think that maybe we're, we're seeing what, um, what qualities it really does take to run, um, to be in charge during a crisis. Because, yeah. um, because optimism and confidence and um, certainty um, are superficially attractive but they're not what gets things done effectively and maybe that's one good thing that will come out of this crisis that uh, certainly that whether or not that's at a political level that people will understand more about what it actually takes to lead well. I think I think that's right in that real sense of what I've seen in um, so for example Germany I think what's been really interesting there is um, Angela Merkel um, has got a, a scientific background and so she's kind of mm. also been able to say this is the scientific evidence but also I can draw it from these different sources because I mm. recognize that they're the experts in the field so so mm. so right we can now take this seriously and we can you know and I think that's really important um, and and one of the things that uh, you know when I obviously hear Jacinta Arden speak about um, leadership through a crisis. Um, you know, one of the things she's she's spoken about as well is the ability to both be um, uh, decisive and, and, and tough in a sense, but also kind and compassionate. And, you know, exactly. for so long we've thought you can't do both, or rather not you and I, but one has thought we yes, can't. Exactly, of course exactly. you can, of course you can. Of course I can, and, and sometimes, you know, I'm... Um, I certainly get the narrative um, from others. You know, you're you're too nice or you're too kind. Well, do you know what? I don't I don't think that's a bad thing. It's okay to be a nice and kind person, um, but also to make really tough decisions and then stick by them because they are the best for the country or the profession or whatever it is. And you might not like that, but that is the job that I'm doing, and that's a decision that I have to make, and I can do that with compassion. With compassion, so you know. I guess people are very, very quick to throw stones. And um, mm. what I've sort of said is, well, I will grow my team, come and work with me and learn the kind of different things we're trying to balance and then learn how to how we make decisions within that environment. But 
as you say, that really crucially, even more important than the decision is, uh, itself is the ability to be thoughtful around then delivering the decision um, and, yeah. and, to be, and to be kind with it. And so no longer, I hope, will, will that type of leadership be sort of um, excused as being kind of a feminine style, but actually just the right style for our society. You are clearly passionate about health, not just about medicine. And whereas, uh, unfortunately, for all kinds of complex reasons, um, a lot of people working in the NHS are very overweight and clearly not actually very healthy. And um, you run marathons, you're a powerlifter. Have you always loved exercise and how can other people get to love exercise? Brackets, including me. <laughs> No, I'm not. And I didn't, I'm not even sure if I still love exercise, although it's been (laughs) good for me mentally over lockdown. So, um, and unfortunately, I will just say I haven't run my marathon because again, obviously it's um, delayed October and we're not sure. We don't know yet whether it's going ahead. Um, But, you know, the fundraise for a very good cause. And we, Mm. we have done what I found is growing up, actually, the one thing we didn't do was a lot of exercise. So our family time was very much together, but it would be, you know, playing a board game or watching a movie or maybe going for a bit of a walk. But um, and my husband and I both grew up in that kind of beautiful, kind of gorgeous kind of family environment, but that didn't have the the uh, level of movement that we both realised we needed. Um, mm. So it was <laughs> later into, into our 20s and when we particularly when we first had our son that my husband was um he was massive you know very very overweight he, he realized that actually that that's it doesn't work it doesn't you know it doesn't work for him and his kid and um our kid um so we both started uh sort of working out more and um i i am definitely the woman who jumps around different things um to find uh, the thing that kind of sustains me um mm. and he's a good old kind of cyclist runner weightlifter that's what he does and i think the obesity argument and the obesity discussion nationally um uh, 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 you know in our country is really really has become quite polarized and has 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 become in one sense more complex than it needs to be what we need almost is to get rid of the tiered weight management systems and think really carefully about people who are struggling to manage their weight because it's not kind of quick fixes that are going to make the difference no, definitely no. a longer term intervention um i think for colleagues who are struggling with weight i think that's really really challenging um mm. you know right now the, the the level of work and pressure that's going that, that people are facing i'm almost saying you know i would I would never seek to advise colleagues anyway, you know, not on a wholesale way, but but certainly I would say, you know, at the moment, what's important is sleep. Um, so get a good mm. night's sleep where possible. Um, and then if you can think about movement, then it's movement, you know, in its most basic sense, even if that's just going for a walk for 20 minutes, mm. without, you know, mm. with your with your kid or your dog or, you know, whoever you're looking after or on your own with your, you know, your earphones in, you get that because actually it's not about the walking it's the fresh air and it's the um the space to sort of to sort of breathe you know mm-hmm. um tragically the pandemic has highlighted health inequalities between rich and poor and between black and minority ethnic and non-black and minority ethnic people and it was 
heartbreaking in those early days when the photos flashed on our tellies of the doctors and healthcare workers who died and you're thinking hang on where are the white people you know yeah. and and that has got even worse yeah. And then on top of that, we've had Black Lives Matter. And um, I spent three days last week helping to facilitate um, a, a global conversation with big corporate um, arising from Black Lives Matter and the work they're trying to do in the light of that. And I do think people are thinking very seriously about this now in a way that they are at a level in depth and complexity that a level of complexity they might not have thought about it before. Yeah. Are you optimistic for? some real change now i have to be christina i have to be because um it is absolutely as you know as heartbreaking as you describe um and these are i mean particularly when you think about healthcare workers but these are our friends and colleagues and our communities and um you know these are my communities and we've never made enough progress and I think the combination as you describe of the effect of COVID but also um, I think people being at home during lockdown during Black Lives Matter so that it really is all around people it's happened before mm. but this time it has felt more painful than ever before and I think that has geared people up in a way that I haven't seen before and I'm very fortunate because um, I have a lot of um, people who are asking how they can be white allies and what can they do. And they are really taking steps on the journey that they've not done before and recognising that they may have, um, uh, they may be racist and not realised it, but actually understanding how to have that conversation. And one of the things that I've been talking about this quite a lot recently, as you can imagine, um, but one of the key things is we need to all be really comfortable with being uncomfortable on this conversation yeah. so actually if you don't know how to approach this you need to find a friend and start asking find a friend from a bme community and say you know how do i have this conversation with you with my patients with my communities with my friends so that it doesn't become a well i don't see i don't i don't see color and, and that's always a conversation <laughs> that kills me slightly you know because yeah. actually, yeah. that's what's going to make the biggest difference. If we all start looking around and saying, if we're, and particularly in the worlds that we're in, um, if we're on a panel or around a board mm. or um, mm. a part of a conversation that doesn't reflect the community that you're seeking to reflect, i.e. isn't truly inclusive, then actually we all call it out. And, um, yeah. you know, it, it, it's a job that we all have to do. But the, the minute, and I think the key here is, as representation gets better, we'll be able to do something for our communities that we've not been able to do before. And we are, unfortunately, in for very tough times ahead. We're not through the pandemic and the economic catastrophe. I don't want to call it a catastrophe, mm. but I fear it will be. The economic pain hasn't really kicked in yet. It has, obviously, for those who've already lost their jobs, but tragically, many more will. And the fear is that those will entrench some of those inequalities even more. Though, actually, I think one thing that will come out of this, again, tragically, is that a lot of middle class people are going to lose their jobs and discover what yeah. it's like to live on universal credit. So a grim picture ahead, but uh, we have to be hopeful. If you were to pick one thing that you would hope for after this pandemic, what would it be? Oh, great question. Um, I 
I really hope, I really believe that we could have a, a renewed sense of community out of this, partly because we've been apart from each other so long in society, but partly because this has been such a huge tragedy to go through together as, as a society. We come out of this with a society that's more connected and more considerate than, uh, for me, that would be phenomenal. Mm. Well, here, here. Let us hope and pray, and uh, an absolute delight to talk to you, Nikki. And um, yes, one day maybe we'll meet in real life. And I would love have to, and thank you. I'd love to talk to you in real life. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. If you liked it, I'd be really grateful if you could share, rate, and review it on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcast. It really does help other people find it. Do follow me on Twitter, where I'm at Queen Christina underscore and on Instagram, where I'm at Queen Christina Writer. If you want to find out how I dealt with my own big work interruption, you could check out my book, The Art of Not Falling Apart, which is recommended self-isolation reading in The Guardian and The Eye. Here's to not falling apart and doing work that works for all of us, and I hope you'll join me again next week.